Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to White Goat Radio, a podcast series from the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My guest today is Fredel Pomerantz Freidenreich, the author of an important new book entitled Passionate Pioneers, the story of Yiddish secular education in North America from 1910 to 1960. The book chronicles the multifaceted network of secular Yiddish schools in the United States and Canada. It is a beautiful, large-format book, richly illustrated, and it even comes with its own CD of 15 camp and school songs. Fredo, welcome to White Goat Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And I should point out that where are you right now? In Herzliya, Israel, where we have lived for the past 23 years. So I'm going to jump right in and say that your book begins with an introduction by Jonathan Sarna, who, of course, is one of the you know, foremost American Jewish historians of our generation. And what I love at the beginning of the book is that he points out the degree to which secular Jewish schools have essentially been, been overlooked and literally left out of the story of American Jewish education. In a rather lengthy article in the Encyclopedia Judaica called Jewish Education in the United States of America, uh, Yiddish schools are recorded exactly one paragraph. And later, in a very important book on Jewish education in America by Eduardo Rausch, uh, there are four pages devoted to Yiddish and secular schooling in the United States out of a book of more than 400 pages. So my opening question for you is, uh, the oversight justified, are Yiddish schools really just 1% of the story of Jewish education in America? Well, I think it's hard to quantify it by percentages or even by numbers because uh, most of the numbers, as I have found, are reasonably inaccurate or certainly missing pieces that would make them more complete. But, Aaron, before we go any further, I do want to add that the book and the subject really covers Yiddish secular summer camps as well. And they played a most important role so that it's not just the schools but also the summer camps. I think you're correct. And I think that uh, Jonathan Sarna was correct in uh, indicating that it has been certainly a neglected, if not overlooked, sadly neglected, overlooked period in American Jewish history and uh, to the sufferance of Jewish education, which has uh, relatively uh, speaking ignored the subject for a variety of reasons. So give me, give me kind of a regalachas here. Just give me an overview. What are we talking about? How many schools were they? What were they like? How many kids attended? Do we have any idea of all this? Yes. I don't have an idea of how many uh, students attended, uh, either the camps or the schools, although sometimes you can find information about a particular school or even a particular community if there is a bureau of, or was a Bureau of Jewish Education or a central agency for Jewish education that gathered statistics which wasn't too common, certainly in the period of time we're discussing. And I have to really make sure that we understand that I'm limiting myself up to 1960, because things were quite different after that. Even in the 50s were already different. But the important thing is that there were, as far as I could tell, close to a 1,000 schools. Wow, that's astonishing. uh, Definitely 39 summer camps, and perhaps there were some schools or some camps that were left out that I just could not find any information about. So I apologize to the audience at large if people know of such institutions that I did not include. Wow, so a thousand schools just in the U.S. and Canada? Close to, yes. Ast- hard hard to say exactly how many, although in the one of my appendices in the book, I list all of the schools that I found and their addresses 
including where they moved to if they moved as much as I could find them, but it's pretty close to that number. And there were 160 communities across North America, meaning Canada and the United States, that hosted these schools. Wow. So how did you come to the subject in the first place? Were you sort of born into this, and did you attend Yiddish schools yourself? Gam uh, vegan. Also this and also that. I was born into it very much so in a uh, family of um, Jewish culture and a home that was a salon for uh, Yiddish literati. Where was this? Well, uh, in various cities that I lived as a child, but particularly in Chicago and then later in Brooklyn. Uh, my mother was a Yiddish poet uh, whose material and whose um, a tribute there is in your Yiddish Book Center, which is wonderful. When I came, I saw it, and I thought it was great. And my father was a Jewish educator, and so the, uh, the marriage was complete in the sense that uh, they saw eye-to-eye on how to raise their children. Ours was a Yiddish-speaking home. All my life, I spoke Yiddish to my parents and wrote to them in Yiddish, uh, even though both knew English very well. Um, and uh, I grew up in an atmosphere that was quite unique, I think, most kids did not have the privilege of meeting the foremost Yiddish writers and poets and dramatists and essayists of the time. And I also attended a host of Yiddish schools and summer camps of different uh, sponsorships. So I had a rather broad introduction to this. And then in my professional life, luckily I fell into, and I say that uh, very advisedly, I fell into Jewish education uh, when I was living in Montreal for several years uh, working with the Habonim Youth Movement, where oh, I was sent I to uh, run the, uh, the different groups in the city. And I fell into substitute teaching at one of the Yiddish, one of the two uh, labor Zionist Yiddish uh, day schools and supplementary schools. They both were, uh, that, I'm speaking of the Folkschule and the Peretschule, right. uh, each of which had day schools and elementary, and elementary supplementary schools as well. And then I was absolutely uh, fascinated by the field, although I had set out never, never to be a teacher, and ended up spending all my life in professional education, informal and formal. So I come by it honestly, I think. <laughs> and how in the world did you research such a vast area? I mean, we're talking about you know, schools of all sorts of different persuasions scattered all over North America. How did you even get a handle on all of this? Well, it wasn't easy, and I'm not sure I had a good grip, but I tried my best. I started out by um, asking people that I knew who had gone to a school, to a shula, or to a camp of any denomination, of any stripe, uh, what their experiences were, and I worked out a questionnaire, and I asked each one at the end if they could recommend other people, and I thought at first that I was going to perhaps write an article upon my retirement, and uh, then it sort of grew to be a monograph, and then eventually it became the book that it became. But I had no idea whatsoever, knowledgeable as I was in the field, and I think I was quite knowledgeable, I really knew very little of what there was to learn in terms of the scope and the depth of, um, of the enterprise itself and also of those who it reached. And uh, that I managed by getting back uh, over 800 questionnaires, uh, mostly from people I had no idea who they were, and making connections through them. Networking was key. And then, of course, I did a lot of uh, research in uh, the major libraries that would have been able to help me, which they did. And I must say, sorry to say, 
that the national sponsoring organizations, of which only two were really left, had no material whatsoever to offer me on the schools or the camps. So let's just talk a little bit about, you know, the, the intellectual roots of the Jewish schools here. Uh, you know, there were, of course, far-reaching secular school systems in Russia and Poland, particularly the Seashell schools and, and interwar Poland. Was there a connection yes. between the European schools and, and what happened in North America? Uh, whether or not this was really something that was Eastern European, but uh, put into American clothing, or as we would say, uh, but the feeling that I got and uh, the conclusion that I came to was that it's really uh, a blending and not even an equal proportion blending. The roots were in Eastern Europe without question, as were all the isms, uh, uh, socialism, Bundism, nationalism, communism, all of those isms that arrived uh, in the late 18th, uh, 19th century in Eastern Europe and were carried by the immigrants when they came to North America. But it was a totally different kind of school system. They could not use the material that was being used in those schools. It wasn't appropriate, neither age nor interest appropriate for the students here. And the, um, the issues that occurred and that confronted them when they came to North America and tried to build their own secular Yiddish system were very different than the issues and the um, the conditions that that were in Eastern Europe. So it was certainly connected with with roots in the ground, but the tree and the branches and the leaves were a totally really North American. And all the material and the printed material of which there were hundreds and hundreds of wonderful uh, examples that I tried to show in the book, uh, both in terms of the content and the format. Uh, which is an interesting uh, deviation in itself, uh, were really North American, clearly North American. Right. As I recall in your book, you point out the Shalom Aleichem folk schools were the only ones that were truly what we call umapangik, that were actually independent schools. All the others had some sort of uh, political affiliation, as you say, socialists and anarchists and communists and labor Zionists. Why were the Yiddish schools so uh, famously ideological? Why did schools themselves have to be ideological, and, and what was the uh, and, and and so contentious as well? Well, they really didn't have to, as the Shomalim Folk Institute proved. Uh, and I was a, a product that was one of the major sources of my uh, Yiddish school education all the way through, including the uh, Jewish Teacher Seminary, which was co-sponsored by the Shomalim Folk Institute at that time, and. Um, they were because I think they reflected the times. They reflected the political and social intensity of the times in which the immigrants found themselves in North America. The conflicts between the melting pot and the cultural pluralistic theories. Uh, the conflicts between um, socialism and capitalism. The conflicts between the public school and the private sector. Uh, public school was a rather holy thing, one, one in, at least in the United States, not so much in Canada. It's a very different story there. But um, there were no really good day schools of any kind. Well, I'm making a generalization, I, but uh, there weren't certainly very, very few. We only had six uh, Jewish secular day schools, Yiddish secular day schools, in America, whereas in Canada, proportionally, uh, every large city that had any kind of either secular education had a fine day school. Fascinating. Well, of course, Canada was, uh, you know, remarkable but not unique. Of course, to this day, there are still 
multilingual, meaning at least partly Yiddish schools in, in Mexico City and in Buenos Aires and in Cape Town and, and other places around the world. So why not the United States? Why did other countries manage and still manage to maintain uh, secular Jewish day schools in the United States, as you say, with very, very few exceptions, never quite managed to pull that off? I, I believe that the, the issue is what the, what the in particular environment promotes. To get to the back of my book, the end of the book, where I talk about the reasons for the decline, the move to the suburbs after the Second World War, and the rise of the synagogue and the Jewish community center as the center institutions of Jewish life, really made a difference in America particularly, and eventually in Canada as well, for the most part. Uh, the Yiddish Agats disappeared in America, in right, a sense, right. in more than in a sense, physically as well. And uh, you can even trace it, if you look in the appendix, you can trace it by the moves of the schools from where they originally were to their various new venues. And they moved with the Jewish community. And you can see it even in, in the Toronto schools and in the, uh, look where the Bialik school is. It isn't in Center City where, where, the, where the two schools used to be, uh, where the two main Jewish day schools were. No, we should point out, it's in high suburbia, right? Code, Code St. Luke. Yes. yes. Right. Right. So when I was in Montreal, another thing that struck me, even though it was somewhat late in the game, in other words, most of the people who were teaching Yiddish and Jewish subjects, certainly at Bialik School, were of a younger generation. They were closer to my age than, than to the you know, original immigrants who had started all this. But I still remember that there were older teachers within the community who had founded these schools and served as principals and teachers. And I was always amazed by the, the respect that they were accorded by the community at large. They, of course, bore the title Lara, meaning teacher. Uh, there was Lara right. Tensor and Lara Zipper. And, and people spoke about them. Uh, you know, that was such an honorific. It was almost used reverentially. And so what I want to try to understand is why such veneration for school teachers, and even more so, why was it the people who were prominent Yiddish writers, prominent intellectuals, decided to spend their time teaching in elementary and, and middle schools, which really, or high schools rather, which really is uh, not the way of popular education in the United States and Canada today? No, I think, I think you're absolutely correct, and I would tie it to an earlier issue that you yourself raised. Uh, why were all these people idealistic? Why were they idealists? Uh, for some of the reasons that I mentioned before. But the, and, and one might say, uh, just parenthetically, and I think it is really a uh, parenthesis kind of statement, that, uh, famous Yiddish writers, uh, and I could name many from Avram Raisin to Leivik to, uh, uh, well, I could go on and on, it doesn't matter, but they, many of them taught in the Yiddish schools, not only uh, because they believed in it, also was a bit of salary that they couldn't make in the outside world, because uh -huh. these were not best-selling books, even though they were widely used in a narrowly defined Jewish uh, sector of the community. But uh, these people were people that I worked with, that I first, as, as a very young teacher, uh, grew up and was really one of the younger set, and I was more uh, alone than, uh, than the opposite way. The majority of the teachers, when I started in the Folkshow and the Paritshow, were uh, Eastern European trained, trained educators, many of them writers as well. And just uh, to sit at their feet was just really something that was uh, not only a pleasure, but a real learning experience. And I believe it was because they had this deep interest in what I think was the whole raison d'etre of the whole mo movement, if I can 
put them all into one movement, all the different uh, strands, and that was uh, Hemshech, continuity. Yes. They were bound and determined that anything that they could do to preserve their kind of Yiddishkeit, and it was a particular kind of Yiddishkeit, obviously, but they were determined to try to leave that, that imprint on future generations, and the way that they wanted to do it was through education, both for children and for adults. Uh, it's an important feature, I think, that not only was this year-round education from Shul into the camp and from the camp into the Shul, which was the, the very famous uh, um, shout that everybody had and, and a slogan that was used by children and by adults, but also a ladder of education from early, early years on right. in kindergarten right. and even earlier than that, all the way through adult education, which was not quite common in any other sphere that I could find at the time. And this was an ongoing business within the schools and the camps. Most all the camps had adult education programs. People came, they learned, not only those who were parents of kids to be near their kids, but because there was an environment, there was a siva, there was something for them to partake of and learn and grow themselves. The, the mothers' clubs, the women's clubs, they, they had so many unique features educationally, and I worked in, uh, in general education, not just in Jewish education, and I can tell you that that was quite unique, and unique certainly also to most of the Jewish schools uh, which were existing at the time. There were very few Jewish schools that did the kind of things like extracurricular activities that were part of the school program. Uh, I want to mention one other thing that I think is important that people don't realize, that when we went, when I as a child went to Shulet, I attended 12 to 14 hours a week of supplementary Jewish education, which is pretty much the same or even more a bit than modern Jewish Hebrew day schools. So when we talk about wow. supplementary education, we're not talking about Sunday schools or four-day-a-week, excuse me, or four-hour-a-week programs. So one of the uh, criticisms that can be leveled against contemporary both Hebrew schools and, and Jewish day schools in the United States is that the curriculum is, is ultimately a limited one, meaning essentially they're parochial schools, they're studying Jewish religion, but that the uh, amount of time devoted to certainly modern Jewish history is very little outside of the Holocaust in Israel. And the amount of time devoted to... that's fairly current, but in, in the long run. Right. And the amount of time devoted to modern Jewish literature, not just in Yiddish, but even modern Hebrew literature, certainly American nil, Jewish literature. Nil, yeah, nil, nil, nil sounds pretty nil. accurate. Right. Maybe so, a Hebrew high school would give a course. May, maybe. So we look at that and we say, wow, are they leaving a lot out? But my question is, how much did the Yiddish schools leave out? In other words, if Jewishness is a holistic proposition, if it's both Kodesh and Chol, uh, and the Yiddish schools were focusing on you know, the experience of Jews as a people and secular Jewish identity and literature, what did they teach about Hebrew? And what did they teach about uh, you know, kind of the, Jew the tradition that had informed Jewish life up until the modern period? Well, that depends on the sponsoring organization, and that's really a key factor although I lumped them all together when we're talking now uh, between us, it's a very different story, and the time is a different time. When there was a period, let's say the first 20 years, between uh, 1912 and uh, up to even 1930, 35, the left-wing groups, not just the communist groups, but the Workman Circle as well, did not teach all Jewish holidays even, wow. did not wow. teach Hebrew for sure. No, they selected the holidays that were freedom holidays, you know, Pesach and Hanukkah and uh, uh, 
the, the rights of men. It wasn't an issue of being Jewish. And the, the communist schools, the schools that belonged to the IWO, and before that to what was called the, the nonpartisan Jewish workers' children's schools, uh, they did not teach um, any of the kind of things that were taught in the Farban schools and the Shomo Echem schools, which not only taught Hebrew for the most part, again, I'm generalizing, right, because right. every school was autonomous, even if they belonged to a parent organization. Uh, there was no um, united curriculum from any one of them. There were suggestions, but certainly they weren't a commandment in any way. And uh, therefore, we, in this sense, I can't generalize, because there were commonalities, which was Yiddish, Yiddish literature, um, the Jewish people, uh, current problems, that all the schools did, but the difference became in their approach to uh, tradition, I won't even say religion for sure, but tradition and Hebrew language. And you can see by examining the curricula of all the different schools, which I did as carefully as I could, the parallels and the, and the vast differences as well. Now that changed as times changed. Uh, not only did the State of Israel make an imprint on the IWO schools, which were no longer, uh, a few years later with McCarthy, were no longer um, together as IWO officially, but still existed. And um, But also in the Arbiterinschel, where they really were centering on socialism, on labor issues, on um, uh, freedom for all peoples, uh, Jewish identity was, was that. That was key and central. And they uh, negated, really negated in, in very outward ways many times, uh, not only Hebrew, but certainly prayer, certainly celebrations or the Siddur, or um, some they, they, they didn't even teach enough. On the other hand, in certain communities, I could mention smaller communities at the time, in the 20s and 30s, even the Arbiterine schools, because of the competition with Talmud Torahs, did teach things that other, other schools in New York would never have taught. So it's very hard to make a generalization other than to say that the polarization was over politics. And that changed also even in the more radical schools as time went on. Hmm. Fascinating. I, I want to ask just a minute about pedagogy as well. I mean, certainly these schools saw themselves as radical or as progressive. Did that apply not only to the uh, content of what they were teaching, but to the method whereby they were teaching? Were they conversant oh, with sure. theories of progressive education? Were they reading so Neil Summerhill and that, that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> yes, very much so. They were, they were uh, intuitively, it seems, because I don't know how many were schooled in, uh, in uh, Dewey philosophy or in understanding uh, Kirkpatrick's theories of education, but they, they seemed to intuitively understand uh, the importance of a... Uh, child-centered education, that was not to say that the children just ran around and did whatever they want. On the contrary, uh, they were formal classrooms. But there was an informality, again, I'm generalizing, but in most of these situations. There was a, a student-teacher relationship that was quite unusual, and almost everyone wrote about it who answered me personally. Hmm. Uh, and I found a lot of that in the literature as well, the kind of seminars that were held in their conferences. But the unique part was their... Uh, the I think, the kinds of things that they introduced that nobody else was doing. Um, all the arts were a, an important and seminal part of the curriculum. They all related to other curricular issues, to literature, to history, but they were absolutely integral. They had music, they had orchestras, they had dance, they had 
uh, drama. Uh, they had even specialist teachers in large enough schools that could afford to have the people come in. Uh, the fact that they emphasized informal education, that the summer camps were such a vital part of the whole Shula experience, uh, is really an important thing. The kind of um, literature that they produced and that the children produced, and I, I have a whole section of that in the book, right. and examples uh, just um, of hundreds and hundreds of publications that were issued by and for children, by and for teachers, by and for parents. Um, there was a, a sense of a community responsibility for helping families and children, including the fact that many were uh, immigrants who really needed help in other things, such as uh, learning about America or Canada. Uh, there were lectures on hygiene. There were lectures on psycho child psychology. There were lists of books recommended for people to read in magazine articles. I mean, I could go on and on, and a, a very unique feature was conferences. There were children's conferences as well as teachers' conferences. They traveled at age eight and nine to regional and uh, some national conferences where the kids would hold uh, forth and have their own agendas. And I give one anecdote, even in the book, uh, quote, where at one conference, I think it was in the New England region of the Arbiturine Schools, but I'm not certain of that, they, the children took a decision that anyone who didn't speak Yiddish uh, within the walls of the school should be asked to leave. That was a children's uh, decision that was put into their constitution of the conference. So many, many of these things were really just uh, uh, practiced. I don't know if it was by design that they understood from some uh, schemata that this was what one should do in a progressive school. Uh, and, of course, I'm sure there were teachers that uh, didn't, weren't as, uh, as um, able to carry out all of these things. But uh, they had this kind of a confluency of understanding that the, the heart and the mind, the intellect, the, the cognitive and the affective have to be merged in some way to really impress upon the child the importance of his Jewishness, whichever particular brand they were trying to, uh, to sell, right. uh, and also that they were responsible for the future of this kind of Yiddishkeit and therefore would have to be proactive in their community life. So the obvious question is, and, and I ask this uh, in a respectful way, so what happened to all of this? If these schools were so extraordinary, it was such a far-ranging kind of uh, world, not only schools but camps that went along with them and conferences and tied to broader organizations, uh, if this was so alive pedagogically and in terms of content, then why is it today we've barely heard of these schools? Why do Jewish kids in America go to Hebrew school and not to Yiddish school or even to Jewish school? You know, why was, was the, I guess the broader question is, was the demise of these schools somehow inherent in their curriculum? Did it prove too limited in the end? Or was it rather a consequence of broader changes, both in the Jewish and, 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 the, uh, and, and broader geopolitical changes as well? It died because of the internal reasons, number one, that the schools, as things changed, could not get together and unify. The politics went too deeply, and they just could not do that. I don't know if they would have, if that would have saved things. I doubt it. But it certainly was a factor. That was one factor. The fact that the, uh, the next generations, after the initial immigrant generation, became Americanized so totally that Yiddish was something that was foreign to them as well. So they wouldn't mind if their child learned some Yiddish, but they had no way, there was no environment and no 
kind of uh, uh, responsible way to help the child uh, outside of the classroom. And that's a very important factor. When there was Yiddish Agas, when there was Yontifs that you knew when you went out into the streets and you didn't even have to be uh, a synagogue member, that just disappeared as they went into suburbia. Uh, Israel became a major factor. Uh, the, the sexiness of Hebrew in the new Sabra uh, Hebrew took on a, a, a life of its own, which it, it never had in the Hebrew schools. I mean, Hebrew was uh, the language was in Kaddish and was also the language of the Sidur and the Tanakh, if you were lucky to study Tanakh in Hebrew. Uh, and in our Shola, we studied Tanakh in Hebrew and in Yiddish together. We took Yehoshua's Tanakh and went page by page when we studied it, and that's how we learned. But um, the, the idea of the synagogue becoming the central part of Jewish life, along with the JCC, which wasn't very Jewish in those days, was more a community center with, with other issues, but that's a whole other story. Uh, that really took over, and the Americanization of the new set of parents, the expectations that they had for, the, for children, um, lessons after school, which were no longer in the Shola, the Shola couldn't manage to do that, had to be gone after public school, so you had to cut down on the hours. Uh, there weren't trained teachers the way they were, because the Holocaust, of course, cut that off. There were so many factors, both external and internal, that uh, really together just seemed to not allow for the growth and the development of these schools, certainly not in the format in which they had uh, lived before. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of schools now that exist, uh, mostly Sunday schools, the few that are. They teach a few Yiddish words. They sing a few songs, they celebrate holidays. I think they try very hard to keep up that kind of spirit, but um, there are none of the camps left the way they were in those days that were uniquely Yiddish-speaking and the forerunners of all the Jewish language camps. That leads me, though, to my last question, uh, which was almost an offhand remark that Jonathan Sarno makes in the introduction, in which he says that he sees your book in the tradition of Yiskabicher, or memorial volumes, yes. meaning that yes, he sees I found it, that interesting. Yeah, he sees it as a chronicle of, of uh, would I, I think he very fairly sees it as a remarkably vibrant and varied world, but that your book is a chronicle of what, of what was. And when I first read that, I sort of nodded and said, yeah, I guess that's true. But I think it's more than just that, or, or my guess is that your intent was more than just that. That, that your intent was not only to chronicle what had been, but that there's also a sense that sort of informs the whole text, that there are still lessons to be learned from all of this. Am I right in that Absolutely. assumption? And if so, what are those lessons for us today? Well, that I think that people who, who have an ideology should get behind it and move it, whatever that ideology is. I think we saw that in the Jewish world, what Zionism was able to do. Of course, with the, uh, I'm saying it in, with tongue-in-cheek, what the Holocaust uh, uh, gave us support to uh, in terms of establishing the state, in terms of all of the Hebrew language camps which came about, which I think were, were wonderful additions to the uh, historical picture, uh, the, Yiddish, the Yiddish schools and camps as well. I think the lesson there, there can be renewed interest or new interest. But um, I think that much of this, I must say, in, in, in thinking it through, a lot of this newly uh, or renewed vigor or interest uh, really stems originally from back in the 60s and 70s when Black is Beautiful came upon the scene and ethnic became in 
and uh, all of a sudden Klezmer became in. This is something that has become, uh, ethnicity is a subject now that's not only studied and taught, multiculturalism is an accepted thing. We no longer have the melting pot theory that there was. So uh, things go perhaps circularly. Uh, I think that the weights are always uh, measured by do you throw the baby out with the bathwater or do you give it a nice warm bath and dress it up and see what you can do. As we grow and as we mature and as we learn and as times change, we have to move with it. And the, the new generation of young people who come forth, all of the hundreds of departments and uh, courses of Jewish study and Yiddish and Yiddish literature uh, in the universities are testament to that. But it's very interesting, I find, that there are fewer courses on Yiddish as a language and more courses about Yiddish and Yiddish life and Yiddish literature that we find. And that's perhaps something that will change as well. I don't know. But in a sense, I think Jonathan was right. It is, uh, in, in many senses, a, a Yisker Buch. Uh, on the other hand, I think it tries to point out the kinds of educational and historic uh, features that should be admired for themselves uh, and, um, and revered in a way. It's a legacy that was left to us, to the Jewish people, and to uh, education in general, I think, that has to be respected and has to be studied. And I hope that the future scholars will uh, be able to use the material that I gathered and not have such a hard time finding all the data, but uh, I'm sure there's still more to find. Fantastic. Well, Fredo, you are just terrific. You're an inspiration, and the book is a, a very important contribution to the field. I recommend it heartily. Again, it's Passionate Pioneers, the story of Yiddish secular education in North America, 1910 to 1960. You've been listening to White Goat Radio, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For additional interviews and conversations, please visit our website at yiddishbookcenter.org audio. Our producer is Emma Morgenstern. I'm Aaron Lansky. Zaymish Stark and Gesund. Be strong, be well, and tune in again soon. Thank you. <laughs>